Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. You've preserved your word. You've preserved so many things to encourage and inspire our faith. Uh, Thank you. I pray uh, you'd come and teach us tonight uh, from the book of Samuel. Uh, Let us hear from your spirit through your word. Uh, Speak directly to our minds and to our hearts about what we need to hear tonight. I pray that you do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel. Uh, remember, in Hebrew, there is only the book of Samuel, just like there's only the book of Kings. They're just much longer, and someone decided to divide them into two books. Okay, so our English versions, there's the first and second Samuel instead of Samuel, and there's the first and second Kings instead of just a Kings. Anyway, woohoo! So now you know that. Uh, what I want to talk about tonight is uh, leadership. It's always a hot topic, especially these days, and a very good friend of mine is one of the best leaders I've ever met. Um, I wrote this. Um, he's not famous. He hasn't written any books. He wasn't larger than life. But he led me as we just lived life together. His name was and is Dave. Uh, Dave is a great friend and was a great mentor for me for seven years while we were in Sacramento. And the kind of the thing that um, I say about Dave is he led a life worth following. He led a life worth following. Not a perfect life, um, but a life worth following in Christ. And so tonight I want to talk about leadership. If you had an opportunity to read the first seven chapters, you know that uh, 1 Samuel is talking about a couple of different characters, and we're going to talk about them. The one word I put on 1 Samuel is monarchy. At the end of the book of Judges, what do they want? A king like all the other nations have. God is going to give them a king in the book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is about the monarchy. It's a transition from the times of the judges. Remember, there's Joshua. He leads them into the promised land. And they kind of do their own thing. And then there's this time of the judges, and it didn't go so well. And the judges are now going to give way to a monarchy. And except for David and half of Solomon, that might not have gone so well either. But anyway, that's for a later day. Monarchy. Uh, Who wrote it? We don't know. Perhaps Samuel. Uh, It's probably during the lifetime of Samuel. The uh, The other time that most people think or other people think it could be written is after or at least during Uh, The very last days of Solomon's life is when they compiled it all. Where? Unknown. Why was it written? The specific purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel is to show that God's sovereignty was delegated to the nation Israel, especially through its line of divinely elected Davidic kings. David and his dynasty demonstrate what it means to rule under God. 
Uh, one more thing I was going to say is since the fall of Jerusalem isn't listed here in this book, it's got to be before 722 B.C. has to be because they would have mentioned it. So it's got to be written before that. So you got a kind of a, a point there. Um, so is it written, uh, you know, is it written in Solomon's day? Probably, probably. But it deals with the time, the time span of Samuel, the last judge, prophet, and um, anointer of Saul, the first king. So Samuel, key figure in the book, and it bears his name. So the book of Samuel, uh, written at, it's about, it may not exactly be written in this time frame, but it's about the closing period of the judges. Complacency and compromise, spiritually speaking, are rampant. Spiritual lethargy and anarchy are pervasive. Defeat is everywhere. It's a time of transition from no king to our king to God's king. And it's time for new leadership. And in, this, in these opening chapters, we're given two lives, two lifestyles, Eli and Samuel, and we are meant to see a couple of things. One, that it's devotion, not position, that gives a person leadership influence. And it's obedience, not appearance, that gives a person leadership influence. Devotion and obedience, not position or appearance. We contrast in these opening chapters Samuel and Eli. Those are the two people who are being compared and contrasted. And we're being taught some lessons here in these first chapters as we move up to Saul and then David. Devotion, not position, is more important to God, and obedience, not appearance, is more important than God. Those who embrace those two things, devotion and obedience, are those who have a life worth following. Let's take a look. Samuel's lifestyle, chapters 1 and 2. There's a man named Elkanah. He has a couple of wives. Uh, one is barren. One is bearing him children. Every year they'd go up to Shiloh. They would do sacrifices. And just like if you heard the message today, in the same way Hagar persecuted Sarah, Penaniah would persecute Hannah. And I love this. Um, Elkanah is such a sensitive man. Verse 8. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Because she was so taunted, she was so upset, she couldn't even eat. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me? Isn't that better than having ten sons? Well, evidently not, Elkanah, because you only give her one piece of meat and you give the other lady quite a few more because she has kids. 
Just like, oh, seriously? Okay, so Elkanah, uh, probably a wonderful man, but not terribly sensitive in the ways of marriage. Once after the sacrificial meal, Hannah gets up to pray. Eli thinks she's been drinking because it, she's, you know, sort of mumbling to herself. Um, and she says, no, I'm not. Um, I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. And he says, may the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. And she says, oh, thank you, sir. And so she goes back, begins to eat. She's no longer sad. Uh, she returns home. The Lord remembers her. And she's, she conceives a son, Samuel. The next year, Elkanah goes up, but Hannah doesn't go. Uh, this seems to go on for two or three years because she mentions later in verse 26, I'm the woman who stood here several years ago. So Samuel, you know, you're thinking weaned, you know, is that six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks? Or He's probably several years old, maybe three, maybe four. And so Hannah finally takes him uh, back up to the Lord and they give him to Eli. She has a wonderful prayer of praise in chapter 2, a marvelous one. And then Elkanah returned home to Ramah without Samuel. And the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. Now we're, so we're introduced to uh, Hannah's son. Now we're going to be introduced to Eli's sons. Just... (laughs) So you're supposed to be going through this going, hmm, hmm. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes the servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. I mean, that was part of the sacrifice. He would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. The man offering the sacrifice might reply, Take as much as you want, but the fat must be burned first. Then the servant would demand, No, give it to me now or I'll take it by force. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. See what's happening here? And so they talk about how he's dressed, and his mom makes a coat for him. And the Lord blessed Hannah with five more children. Now Eli was old. But he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. (laughs) Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, very familiar verse to you, and you wonder, huh, I didn't know it came from here. 
Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with people. Yes, it is the same thing that's said about our Lord. One day, a man of God comes to Eli and says, uh, the Lord is going to take your lineage away. He's going to kill your sons. You're going to die. And uh, that's going to be it. And he's going to raise up a faithful priest to serve him instead. So first we look at Samuel's lifestyle. He has the impact of godly parents. He's got, you know, he might not be sensitive, but he at least has a godly father who takes him to Shiloh to worship every year like they were supposed to do. He has a praying mother, which is the best thing any person in any family can have. And it turns out that they give God their best, their firstborn. They give the Lord Samuel, just as Hannah said she would do. She does that. Amazing. Samuel goes on in chapter 3, and you've, you've heard this before in Sunday school. One night, Eli, who is almost blind by now, uh, well, let me go back to 3.1. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now, in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. And then you've heard this part. Samuel! He runs to Eli. (laughs) Nope, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Okay? Samuel! He does this. He does this three times. Finally... Eli, in his great spiritual sensitivity, realizes that it's God. And so he tells Samuel, speak, your servant is listening. And so Samuel runs back, and the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, speak, your servant is listening. And the Lord says, "Um, I'm going to judge Eli and his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I've vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go back to bed now. (laughs) you imagine this kid? He goes back to bed in the morning. (laughs) If I were Samuel, I'd be sneaking around because there's one person I don't want to see, and that's Eli. Eli, hey, Samuel, by the way, (laughs) what did God say to you last night? (sighs) Well... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) crazy tell me everything and may God strike you and even kill you if you hide anything from me (laughs) oh my gosh little pressure so he tells him everything and Eli says let the Lord do as he thinks best And then we get another one of these little statements that as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. And everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. And Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. So we see Samuel's lifestyle, the impact of godly parents, and the growing influence of a dedicated life. He's got an attentive spiritual ear He's got an obedient will, he's got a humble heart, and he's got a godly walk. 
compare and contrast. How about Eli? He's judged for 40 years, and he's become a curator of relics. The tabernacle is no more than a museum for Eli. There's nothing living that happens in there. There's nothing interesting or exciting or transforming that goes on in there. He's just the curator of a museum. What do we know about old Eli? He, he was on the heavier side. He's also blind. Remember we talked about that with um, our buddy Isaac? And I told you many, many, many weeks ago. So remember sometimes physical things can, can hint at spiritual realities? Here's another one. Eli, and part of this part of the story, is almost blind. And where does Eli get? Eli is blind by the time he's finally taken. Spiritually blind as well as physically blind. He's self-indulgent. He could not lead himself. Point. The fact of his neglect toward his sons, Hophni, and Phineas, and toward the truth about the ark in the first five verses of chapter 4. At that time, Israel's at war with the Philistines. and They're going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And one of the Israelites has a great idea. Let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. Now, if you're Eli, you should have said, what? That's not true. That's not how this works. This isn't, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and you carry the ark and it shoots out rays at the enemy or something like that. That's not what this is about. He should have put a stop to it, but he didn't. So they come and they get the ark and they take it out to the battlefield. So Hophni and Phinehas Eli knows what's going on, and he doesn't do anything about it. He seems to lecture, but then he stops. And he doesn't seem to get the truth about the ark. I, I think he has a somewhat superficial commitment to the Lord. It's not the same kind of lifestyle that little Samuel is demonstrating on the pages before it. What's the fruit of his neglect? His sons don't honor or respect him, and the Lord is going to overthrow his house. That's what's going to happen to Eli. He has, while Samuel's influence, remember at the very end of three or beginning of four, and Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. Eli has no spiritual influence left at the end of his life. Eli's leadership left a compromising people, a superstitious people, an abandoned people. Remember, they get up here and um, she names the child Ichabod, which means where is the glory or God's glory is gone or something like that. So he leaves a compromising people, a superstitious people, an abandoned people, and an unchanged people.
people. As you continue to read through this, what, what happens to the people? They're disobedient. They don't know what's going on. They live as they please, yet believing God would favor them anyway. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi, he's speaking to Eli here, would always be my priests. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. He leaves an unchanged people behind him, as well as a defeated people. This is a result of Eli's leadership. As we're reading this comparison and contrast in these first few chapters, comparing and contrasting Samuel with Eli, Eli leaves behind a compromising people, a superstitious people, an abandoned people, an unchanged people, and a defeated people. Not very high marks for leadership. Samuel's leadership, on the other hand, by the time we get, remember the ark comes back in chapter 7, beginning of verse 3, then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashereth. Determine to obey only the Lord, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashereth and worshipped only the Lord. What is Samuel's leadership already beginning to leave behind? A repentant people. They confronted and rejected their idols and they renewed their allegiance to the Lord. Samuel has such spiritual influence already that he's able to turn this disobedient people through the Spirit of God, but he's calling them to repentance and they turn and follow him. Five through nine then. So then Samuel says, gather at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they go through a, a uh, basically a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, let's see, they're still in the midst of the ceremony when they find out the Philistines are going to attack, right? And so Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel. And the Lord answered him. So he leaves a he's leaving a repentant people behind him, a consecrated people. They prayed. They sacrificed drink and burnt offerings. And what does the Lord do? Verse 10, just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. Sounds a little like something that's going to happen to the next king, doesn't it? What does Samuel do? He prays and he sacrifices. What does God do in response? Wipes out the Israelite, uh, the uh, Philistines. Uh, he speaks with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mitzvah to a place below Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. And then Samuel... Many of us love the, uh, the, the hymn about mine Ebenezer. And you're like, what is an Ebenezer? Here it is. Here's your Ebenezer. 
What is it? It's a memorial stone. You set up an Ebenezer as a place of remembrance for what a, a, a particularly great deliverance that God has done. Uh, it means um, like the, the stone of God's help or something like that. It's a memorial stone. Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. And so they, they're a consecrated people. They're a victorious people. The Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. Uh, they get some territory back. And in those days, there's also peace between the Israelites and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. And he has a traveling uh, court, sort of a circuit. And he'd finally return to Ramah and he would hear cases too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. Samuel's leadership leaves a repentant people, a consecrated people, a victorious people, and a spiritually wise people behind him. A great example of a strong spiritual leader. Versus Eli, not good. A life worth following. What does a life worth following look like? between Eli and Samuel. A life worth following leaves behind it repentant people who confront their idols and their, in quotes, Canaanites, who renew their allegiance to the Lord alone. Leaves behind, a life worth following leaves behind it repentant people I don't know about you, well, I actually do, but I'll say it that way so you think it comes across softer. Uh, you know one of the biggest idols we all have to confront? The idol of individualism. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. And we live under and around and behind that idol all the time. A life worth following leaves behind it repentant people who confront their idols and their Canaanites. Uh, you can find a list of the Canaanites in the book, Respectable Sins. It lists a lot of Canaanites in there. The book I love to hate. And these people renew their allegiance to the Lord alone. A life worth following leaves behind it consecrated people who pray to the Lord, who worship Him in spirit and in truth. It leaves behind it victorious people who know how to battle against sin and the flesh, who know how to walk in faith even when it's really, really hard. They know how to walk in faith. And it leaves behind it spiritually wise people who know the scriptures, who know how to, James 1, when they lack wisdom, how to ask God for wisdom. A life worth following leaves behind it repentant people, 
consecrated people, victorious people, and spiritually wise people. A life worth following is a steward of its time. Are you regularly deepening your relationship with the Lord through, wor- through the word and prayer? A life worth following is a steward of its talent. What's your shape? S-H-A-P-E. Spiritual gift, heart, abilities, personality, and experiences. We have a little online thing that you can take. There's a class that gets offered every once in a while. But what's your shape? What is your shape? You should know that because it'll help you. We can all serve in any capacity at any time. We're just servants. But there might be a particular area that you have been gifted by God to serve in. And you need to pick out of that area more than you pick out of others. How are you serving others? A life not given away is a life squandered. And a life worth following is a steward of its treasure. Are you striving to be, fa- to be a faithful steward of the resources God has entrusted to you? Steward of its time, a steward of its talent, a steward of its treasure, a steward of its tongue, what you're saying to and about others. You know, it's, it's back in Respectable Sins. It's one of those little Canaanites that lives next door, at least to me. Um, are there only wholesome words coming out of your mouth? Words such as are fit for building one another up? A life worth following has become a bondservant of the living God. Have you given up both the control and the destination of your life to God? And like Samuel, a life worth following is involved in the lives of others. Question, do you think that's clean, sterile, clean and sterile, or messy? You are correct. It is messy. That doesn't mean we don't get involved. A life worth following is a life that's involved in the lives of others. Are you ready for shocking news? You are already a leader. First, you're leading yourself. At least I hope you are. And here is an axiom, write it down. It is truth. You'll never lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. Leaders lead from the front, not from behind. If you want to lead someone, you'll only be able to lead them as far as you've led yourself. Husbands, You're leading your wives. Now, we may not be good leaders, but we're supposed to be leading our wives. Parents, you're leading your children. Grandparents, you're helping to lead your grandchildren. Employers, you're leading your employees. Home group leaders, you're leading those in your group. And every Christian should have at least one Timothy. Timothy. 
I look out at the uh, wisdom in this room, the life experience, the walks with Christ, and I hope each and every one of you has at least one Timothy. And if you say to me, well, Bill, I don't have anything to share. Hmm, I wonder which one of those is. Huh. I don't know if it's in there. But it should be the one that's the air horn. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Every single one of you has something to offer someone who's younger in the faith. You should be leading yourself. Husbands, we should be leading our wives. Parents, we should be leading our children. And by the way, you know when that stops? I see some of the wisdom around some of the tables. You know when that stops? Never. I still get advice from my dad, and he's 89. My dad still gives me advice because you're a parent for life. Employers, home group leaders, every one of us should have at least one Timothy. You are living lives worth following. Every single one of you. My encouragement and exhortation to you is lead someone tomorrow. Lead. So I know what you're going to do. You're going to go, yes, I should do that. You're going to go home tonight. I should really pray about that. No, you should really not pray about it. You should really go find someone and you should just go do it. This is a Nike moment. Just do it. You don't need to pray about this. You need to do it. Home groups are starting. Some of you are in a home group. Wonderful. I'm not going to tell you to get out of it. Okay, I am. You know what you need to do? You need to start a new home group this year. And maybe you go pick some 20s or some 30s or some 40s or wherever you are. Start a new group with people you don't know. And get involved in their lives. And begin leading them. You can do it. I know you can. You go, I don't want to. Oh, you know... Let's go back to Eli's life. You want me to go back and do that? You are living lives worth following. Lead someone tomorrow. You are qualified to lead. For next week, read 1 Samuel 8 through 15. 8 through 15, we'll take the next chunk of 1 Samuel We'll keep our march going. Hey, congratulations. We're in the 11th book of 39. Not quite, but we're almost a third of the way there. Well done. Congratulate yourself. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the, the examples. Uh, you lay out very clearly for us what leadership looks like and what it should leave behind. And then you've reminded us that we are already each leaders. And so I pray you'd help us to reflect tonight um, that if we're doing well, we would say we bless the Lord. And if we're not doing as well as we would like to or we know we should be, uh, 
thank you for uh, encouraging us that that can all change tomorrow and that you'll give us um, not only one more chance, but 10 or 15 or 100 more chances. Uh, thank you for your wonderful compassion and wonderful grace. And uh, tomorrow, I pray that you would put somebody on each of our minds, someone in each of our hearts, uh, that we need to just step into their life and offer, uh, not offer to be their mentor or their leader, as Dave was for me, but just offer to listen and to get involved in what's happening in their life and see where you take it. Uh, we thank you and we love you and help us to encourage one another to love and good deeds until you come, and this is part of it. We thank you and we pray for this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.